building nice and tidy it's a rule i learned in school get your money every friday happy endings are the rule so divide up those in darkness from the ones who in light light them up boys there's your picture drop the shadows out of sun. this is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw I wanted to tell you more and more about James Baldwin he seems to be the writer that I'm going to live with for the rest of this year, <laughs> 2019. Ah, oh, yes, maybe next year. I have Toni Morrison down for next year. I can only be married to one writer at a time, it seems. That's nonsense. Never mind, never mind. Uh, I just keep thinking lately about how shocked everyone was when Baldwin appeared on the scene. I think of him as having had a lot to do with my divorce. You know, I remember uh, a relative, I hope he's gone by now, uh, an old in-law looking at him on the TV and muttering, troublemaker, troublemaker. Anyway, uh-huh. I, re- I remember his appearances on television. James Baldwin, his vivacity and his electric intelligence. Uh, 1948 was the time when he kind of gave up on America, went over to France and kept commuting back and forth, you know, all through the civil rights movement, back and forth. Uh, What we saw, what I saw for the first time was... Uh, that electric, electric intelligence I keep repeating. He he looked so, so very, uh, what is the word? Uh, he's like a gnome. He's magic. That's what it is. He had the, the magic. Uh, he also had passionate Christianity, uh, the kind I go for. It's very hard these days to say things about Christianity, without, uh, you know, without qualifying that. Uh, Anyway, I just watched white people looking on in shock. Some of them even said, oh, it's funny, it looks like a monkey. (laughs) Anyway, Baldwin thought, he thought and thought, you know, his father told him, yes, he was the ugliest child, right, he'd ever seen. And he thought, well, if that's the truth, uh, then, well, that means uh, I can I can conclude that nobody knows what a writer looks like. And so he said to himself, he thought he would be a writer. Now, a lot of us know that feeling, the feeling that we will not be loved for ourselves. So we must express our love. At one remove, 
between the pages of a book or behind a microphone. And the soul of James Baldwin was so easy to see, even on television. All those reactions when he appeared on the mass media. Uh, I think that's what educated me. I could separate the wise observers from those who were mired in fear and in prejudice, the Americans who, as he himself, as Baldwin wrote, uh, white, whites who fear black people because they fear death itself. Uh, you know, they're afraid of dark places, afraid of their own shadows, in fact. Carl Jung, Carl Jung tells us all about the, the, uh, what is it, the shadow self. Mm, um, yes, Baldwin blew our minds when he wrote that racism has something to do with the fear of death. Now, I know, and today, of course, we all know, that that applies to sexism as well. Mm-hmm. I'm reading about books written by women in which they, they, they examine the subject of the darkness, the darkness, the primordial qualities of the female, yes. Sexism, usually those books are written by men, but apparently women are quite capable of seeing the dark side, the back side of the female principle, anyway, deep down in our reptilian brain stem, there is an antipathy to that which is different from ourselves. The black, the Jew, the woman, anyone who is alien, who is other, in a psychotic individual, this paranoid ideation is acted out. And we get Hitler, you know, or people like. Well, I don't know if anybody's like Hitler, but the poetic view is that this rejected other, this other, is very often a lost part of ourselves, a lost part of our own souls. Now, when I first read the, the work of James Baldwin, I felt an instant recognition. I found that peace of my own soul that I'd been looking for. Oh, I know that like Richard Wright before him, some of his work is didactic, uh, sort of like Leo Tolstoy's. He wrote about suffering and in particular about humiliation. The humiliations inherent in the human condition are perhaps the most serious subject for any novelist. Baldwin was a moralist in the true sense of the one who wishes to lessen suffering in the world. Mm -hmm. More little notes here in my essay, uh, little footnotes on humiliation. Uh, Engmar Bergman said that uh, the subject of humiliation was very important in art that he tried in his films to treat uh, human humiliation and to show the violence that it does to our uh, 
our psychology, our souls. Uh, now, James Baldwin began in the church. Um, I think Pentecostal, I believe. He preached in a Harlem storefront, uh, I think up to age 17. He was into redemption uh, early on. He was saved, yes, saved. Uh, well, he went through the motions. Anyway, uh, Baldwin observed that the church was certainly safer than the streets, that the streets would have made him a junkie or a pimp. I remember at about the same age, I found a home, a sanctuary in the theater. I realized, ah, yes, 17, I was 17. I realized that what was expected of nice white girls in the 1940s and 1950s was was a killer, yes. Talk about lose your soul. Baldwin's theater, his theater, was a pulpit. And he stayed, he stayed there for several years. I think of preaching and acting as similar skills. They certainly shape writers. Toni Morrison uh, writes in one of her uh, essays that she started in the theater. She she loved acting, of course. Oh dear, of course, none of us, <laughs> none of us last. If we did well, we'd all be movie stars, right? Uh huh. I think that uh, you know when we have time to think, we sort it out, and certainly there's always time to take up the pen. When all else fails, take up the pen. Uh, Baldwin's autobiographical novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain, is the one to uh, to focus on if you want his biography. Uh, I think that that story, the, the novel anyway, in the film in some ways, uh, is all about Baldwin's profound love-hate relationship with his father. It was actually, yes, his stepfather. But who can doubt that it is the ones who raise us, the ones who are our families in the home, they imprint our psyches, right? That Pentecostal church, uh, mm, yes. Baldwin wrote that his father hated the white man and that he went into the church to ask God to kill the white man. Yes. Yes, he said that, yes, the powerlessness of his father. This is what broke his father's spirit. He said his father's rage is what killed him. The book gives you Baldwin's aching love for his father and his overwhelming sadness over his father's wasted life. That's what remains in the reader's mind. Uh, we all know the sadness of uh, losing someone, having them die without having realized, without having individuated to the point where they knew uh, <laughs> what killed them, yes. As my mother always said, it's nice to know what hit you. Now, uh, 
I think that, uh, right, there's an interesting documentary that changed my point of view. I do need movies. I do need, uh, I do need the screen. I saw something on television that uh, educated me. It really changed my my uh, understanding. It was a documentary, and it juxtaposed the childhoods of James Baldwin and Hubert Humphrey. Think about that one. I don't know if you're familiar with Hubert Humphrey, but <laughs> yes, no more. All-American white boy can be found. Uh, now, I I saw, well, I saw that this television show had succeeded in combining sociology with poetry. It shows still photos of hum- Humphrey. Yes, poor old Humphrey. He's a soda jerk. And then we see stills of children looking out the windows of Harlem tenements. And, of course, we see the contrasting lives, uh, the backdrops for these lives, the Midwestern white boy whose life is all affirmation and mashed potatoes, and it's juxtaposed with this urban black boy whose humiliation at the hands of a white policeman when he's 10 years old leaves scars that never, never heal. Baldwin once said his birthright was to live in the world as a man, but his inheritance in America was to be a despised, uh, can't use the (laughs) N-word. Dick Gregory used it, he he thought it was fun anyway. That was his inheritance in America, to be a despised N-word. Hubert Humphrey's confidence in himself comes not so much from being a rich kid. His father was a pharmacist, but from being a loved kid. Baldwin's concluding lines at the end of this astonishing docudrama as he stands over his father's grave. Those lines speak of a father who never knew who he was, never knew what hit him. Baldwin believed that his father's life was not only empty but unresolved and full of hate. The only way to prepare for death is to live fully, to make that journey the poet makes into darkness, into the nether world. We all know what uh, uh, internalized oppression can do to human beings, and we all know many people, some of them even our relatives, who have died without understanding what that uh, oppression has done to kill them, kill their hearts. Ah, there's a old Sumerian goddess, yes. <laughs> I always I always get pictures of her out. And I like to I like to think of the mythic, the mythic figures in the ancient world. And they're the ones who go down into the darkness and dig out all this stuff. 
Yeah, she's a Sumerian goddess, the legendary Inanna. Mm-hmm. I start calling on Inanna. She was always looking for her sister in the underworld. There's a lot of those mythic figures, you know. But uh, I just, I just got used to talking to her when I began to understand what my feelings were about my parents. Uh, I wanted, I wanted to find the wisdom that I needed to grow up to. Uh, find my real self to rule my kingdom back here on the earth. Uh, I needed to go and get that that secret knowledge. Uh, now we all know that you gotta go. You gotta go uh, through the exile and the descent. You have to go into that dangerous labyrinth. Now the labyrinth is always. Uh, in one's own time. I can't go back into the ancient uh, Sumerian <laughs> labyrinths, no. I have to go into the the bars that I remember. Mm-hmm. I believe that if anyone ever made the trip to hell and back, uh, it was James Baldwin. You got to make that trip to hell and you gotta come back home to tell all about it. James Baldwin used both his mind and his heart to seize, seize the apple of knowledge uh, as a pomegranate. I love those paintings of the the uh, beautiful pre-Raphaelite pictures, yeah, the pomegranate. Uh-huh. Oh, those snakes of sensuality. Oh, it's the hero's journey, and of course, it is the path of saints. Uh, Joseph Campbell, old Joe Campbell. Aha, uh-huh. he wrote all the books about that. Aha. Uh-huh. Baldwin is a transcendent figure. He came out of Harlem, an artist. Never mind his experiences there. Uh, he came out as an artist because of those experiences. I I have times when I, I'm afraid he may prove to be one of the last great men in American letters. I define a literary giant as a great lover, as someone so passionate in her or in his love. Yes, so passionate in that love that it overflows and embraces the many, the others, all the rest of us. Uh, Today, the great men of literature are Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, long list of women Now, their books, too, are about loss, redemption, and the uses of suffering. They, too, work in the hope of a better day, right? Yes, a better man and a wiser woman. Yes, hope, that damn thing with feathers. Many of us today are sick and tired of hope. Yes, hope is the rope we hang ourselves from. 
Some of us want to awaken into the present moment. <laughs> Try it sometime, yes. Waken into the moment. It's gone. Hope is that dream deferred, always deferred still. It is poetry in the hands of those who write for the future, for the next generation, for what we are becoming. The prophet must write as one who is already dead. Footnote here, I think of the wonderful young people in the, uh, well, the, the new the green new deal folks right yes they seem they seem so uh so what is the word uh not just hopeful they seem so very very strong i'm not quite sure how you get to be strong i think you kind of maybe got to be born with it uh writing for the future I look and I see that these are the ones we waited for. Gosh, I hope they don't get shot. Anyway, when Baldwin did die, the media shrugged. He got about as much airtime as a forgotten film star. Uh, during a primetime obituary, they showed a film of James Baldwin at his country home in France, uh, it was uh, 1987, right? Uh, he was speaking with an interviewer. Uh, it's an old interview, but you couldn't hear what he was saying. What we heard was the voiceover. The voiceover always thinks that they they sh should they should tell us uh, what we need to know. Uh, I I can't believe it. They they didn't try to get his voice on the air. They just. Uh, put on a comment about his lonely life, uh, talking about him as an expatriate. Then they mentioned Giovanni's Room. It's an early novel about a tragic gay love affair. Mm, yes, when uh, Baldwin first came to Paris, he had this tragic love affair, which he turned into a novel. Anyway, they mention, yes, Giovanni's room, and they say that this book dealt with homosexuality. <laughs> Actually, it's a very early work. It deals with the anatomy of passion. I, I read it in my 20s, and it, it did help me understand the process of passion, how the obsession with someone else, the... Obsession with another can become a disease. I saw through a glass darkly, <laughs> the face in the glass bottom boat. I think of some bits and pieces in Anais Nin, her descriptions of how passion or love can become a disease, can become destructive. Uh, anyway, James Baldwin did what Gertrude Stein had not been able to do. Gertrude Stein 
wrote about the bottom nature of things. But always for Stein, the human mind wins out over human nature. Baldwin got a little closer to the bone, to the marrow, or at least the marrow of men. I wonder now if Baldwin and Stein have gotten together on the other side. Gertrude Stein, too, went to live in Paris. Well, because she was gay, that was part of the reason. James Baldwin would insist it was because he was black, but I imagine gay also had something to do with it. I wonder what uh, he might say to Richard Wright. Uh, I don't think they understood each other. Certainly, certainly not, not, uh, not in the sense of understanding each other's writing. Uh, I wonder if Richard Wright uh, is any wiser now that he's dead. Uh, I wonder if you stop becoming when you die. Always it takes a generation or two for everything to settle, for the blood to dry. Someone said only the dead tell the truth. And then, not for some years, just as Richard Wright's native son has only come to the screen uh, in the late 1980s footnote here I recently saw, an absolutely god-awful, dreadful production of Native Son. I don't know how they got away with it. Uh, surely there must be someone to stop anything that awful. I don't want to talk about it. Uh, the one, the picture that came to the screen in the late 1980s had uh, uh, Ofra Winfrey as the mother. Uh, and it, it, it wasn't bad, yes. I'm trying to remember all the actors. Anyway... An early native son, you know, the one in which the young man does not know what hit him until the very end, till he is about to die to be executed. Uh, he commits crimes without even being aware of what he's doing. And a couple of young communists try to save him. They're, they're pretty much the ones who got him into trouble in the first place. But anyway... Uh, Native Son is a portrait of a man who needs to be educated, who needs to understand his place in history, who he is and what the world has done to him. Uh, anyway, uh, I think Baldwin's work will only slowly emerge when his books and his writing... Uh, are old enough to keep at arm's length when it really is just history and can't hurt anyone anymore. Oh, soon I want to talk about Baldwin's play Blues for Mr. Charlie. <laughs> it's a wonderful play. I tried to get it produced in the suburbs out in Lafayette, California. The play reading committee dismissed it, saying that it was all, all old hat, and they'd done all that civil rights stuff last season. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back again soon. 
Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the The House Intelligence Committee holds the first public impeachment hearings this week. KPFA will carry the hearings and analysis. Mitch Jeserich will host, fresh from his return from Washington, D.C. Day 1, Wednesday, 7 a.m. The top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine, William Taylor, and career State Department official George Kent testify. On Friday, it's the ousted U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch. Listen live, KPFA 94.1 FM and kpfa.org. Thank you. Thank you to all of our loyal listeners who continue to amaze us. You keep KPFA from yielding, sinking, or losing our courage to be truly independent. You bolster and sustain us. No other public radio station can truly say this and know it's true, that we are proudly listener-supported. Thanks again from all of us here at KPFA. KPFA. 94.1 